well. It's a lovely, overcast, rainy morning. And that always seems to, I don't know, put us in a sense of melancholy, doesn't it? Uh, you get up this morning, I don't know about you, but I got up this morning and just didn't want to get up this morning. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm listening right now. The rain just started. It, it's an interesting sound uh, pounding on the roof, uh, hearing the cars drive by with the water splashing around. And just it kind of puts us in this, this place of, of melancholy at times. Um, and, and, you know, it's interesting because last week we celebrated Easter. We talked about how the resurrection, how Easter uh, puts us in this tremendous place of hope, uh, this opportunity for us. We talked about how the resurrection is a promise, not just for life when we die, but life uh, now, where we can experience the fullness of life now. And, and while we know all of that intellectually, we know all that in our mind, days like today, and uh, just sometimes days in general, uh, we don't always live it in our lives. We don't always live uh, like we are experiencing life and life uh, to the fullness. Um, we go through times of difficulty, times of trials, hardships, times of loss. And sometimes we wonder where Jesus is in the midst of all that. It seems like an interesting sermon to give on such a blustery, overcast kind of day. You know, years ago, um, when, when we were downtown, we had our building downtown, there was this little room uh, coming in through the back door where the parking lot was. There was a room off to the side. It was our mechanical room. It's where the furnaces were and, and everything else was. And the room was kind of... Um, it was just a room. It wasn't connected to the rest of the building. And we tended to ignore that door. And uh, one winter, we discovered that we had a resident, we had a person, a tenant, living in our mechanical room. Um, I guess it got so cold outside, he was living in a porta potty. And it got too cold to live in a porta potty or to sleep in a porta potty. So that door never really locked well. And he figured that out. And lo and behold, he turned it into an apartment. And our tenant, his uh, name was John. And, uh, and it became an interesting uh, relationship between us, uh, the church, and John. Uh, we didn't necessarily kick him out. Uh, we didn't advertise that he was there either. Um, and and uh, we kind of built this relationship. And then John, uh, one reason or another, uh, ended up up in Rockford. And John was always uh, a, a difficult person in one sense to deal with. He, he dealt with addiction. He dealt with uh, probably some mental illness. He was usually... Uh, under the influence of one thing or another. It didn't really matter. Uh, but he ended up in Rockford, and something incredible happened in Rockford. Uh, John uh, somehow got involved with the church there, uh, got saved, got baptized, got, went through AA, went through a whole recovery program, turned his entire life around. And um, John had this opportunity. They found him an apartment. They found him a job up there. And then John came back down to us because he had to take care of some business in DeKalb. And we were, we were amazed. We were excited with him. We were celebrating with him for everything that God had done for him while he was up in Rockford. And he said, yeah, you know, this is awesome. This is like, it feels like a brand new life. And he goes, i got to do a couple of things in DeKalb. One of them is I've got a doctor's appointment I have to go to. And he went to the doctor's appointment and found out that he had stage 4 cancer in less than a month. I remember when that occurred, there was this sense of, why? 
Why? Why? why? He, he finally gets the breakthrough in his life. He finally has hope for a future. He finally has everything. And now this. How do you reconcile something? How do you do that? And we've all been there, right? We've all had moments in our life when our faith gets stretched, when doubts come in, when we're not exactly sure what we do with all this. Where it feels like Jesus is just a million miles away from us. There's a favorite quote of mine from the play Fiddler on the Roof. Tevia, the father, um, a, a Jewish man, a faithful Jewish man, he's praying to God. And, and you know, they're a poor family. They're going through all kinds of trials and and tribulations, and he looks at God and he goes, I know, I know, we're your chosen people, but for once in a while, can you just choose someone else? You know, we, we have that moment in our lives, don't we? Why us? Why me? Why are we dealing with this now? I thought you loved me, God. Why now? And so what do we do in moments like that? When we struggle, uh, when there's doubt, well, there's an interesting story uh, of another couple who, who was confused, who wasn't sure what to do, and it comes right after the Easter story in Luke. And it's a fascinating story. And so I want to look at that. We're in Luke chapter 24. If you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 24, we're going to start at verse 13. If you don't have your Bibles, it should be on the screen. The writer Luke says this, Now that same day, the same day as, as the resurrection, Two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus Himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing Him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their face, faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since this all took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen visions of angels who said he was alive. And some of our companions went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are, how slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what he said, or what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was, with, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized Him and He disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while He talked with us on the road and opened the Scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, 
It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what happened on their way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Lord Jesus, we just welcome your presence here with us. Father, we welcome you. Holy Spirit, we say come, come into this place. Lord, as we dig into your word this morning, Lord, just come and speak to us. Come and speak to us, Lord. Allow us to hear your voice clearly. Let your word come and transform us. Let it go deeply into our hearts, into our spirits, into our minds, into our lives. Thank you, Lord Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Many of us uh, have heard this story. This isn't a new one. And it's an interesting story. We're, we're situated on Easter Sunday on a road. And there's a couple. We know one of the two is, is Cleopas. John tells us that Cleopas' wife was, was at the cross. So there's a possibility that this is a husband and wife couple. Uh, many other people just believe it's two men, but, but you kind of wonder if Cleopas is going to leave his wife behind. So my gut has always been it's probably Cleopas and his wife, and, and they're heading uh, to Maus. Now it's the Easter, and we read Luke's Easter story last week, and Luke's Easter story... Um, is an interesting one. Because Luke doesn't really give us the resurrection until after this story. It's after this story that Jesus appears to the disciples. And we know that He's, he's been resurrected. And that we know that He's alive. But the Easter story, if you remember, uh, Luke's version, the women come to the tomb and the tomb is empty. And they see an angel. And the angel says, he is risen. Go back and tell the disciples. And so they do that. They go back to tell the disciples. But women have no credibility in this time. And they look at them like, you're crazy. And so some of the disciples run to the tomb. And in, in Luke's version, you know, John's version is the famous one where you know, Peter and John went and John saw and believed. And in Luke's version, they went and they were perplexed. They didn't know what to make out of them. And so that's the position the disciples are early that Easter morning. They're perplexed. They're not exactly sure what to make out of it. There's these women over here, they've got to be crazy because they're telling this weird story about angels and resurrection, and none of that can be right. That doesn't make sense. And we talked last, uh, last week about, you know, what's a dead Messiah? There have been dead Messiahs before. Dead Messiah usually is a false Messiah. And to see, to see Cleopas and his wife heading back to Emmaus makes total sense because their world has completely collapsed. It's all gone. And so they're heading back home. And we really get that view in, in verse 19 when they tell Jesus, you know, we had hoped this would be, he was the one. We had hoped he would be the one to redeem Israel. This was our hope that he was going to be the king, that he was going to kick the Romans out, that finally, finally Israel would be redeemed and restored. The kingdom of David would be restored and they would live in a moment of peace and prosperity. But their hope had been dashed, gone. Not only that, it's been three days. Now, three days are important in Jewish tradition because Three days meant you weren't just 
dead, you were fully dead. Monty Python fans out there. They weren't just mostly dead. After three days, you were dead dead. Like, really dead. Like, there's no coming back from dead dead. And so it's been three days, and their hope is gone. It's dashed. And doubt has crept in. And notice what they say in verse 24. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. Isn't that the problem we tend to find ourselves in when we're in moments of doubt and despair and hardship? In the midst of our trials, in the midst of our pain, we normally can't see Jesus there. We look but we feel like He's not there. Like He somehow has abandoned us. Like like He's a million miles away from us. He's left us there to just sit in our pain, in our despair, in our doubt. We feel isolated. What's interesting though, is even though they can't see Jesus, Jesus is right there with them. He's walking with them on the road. He's right next to them. But they just can't see Him. They can't recognize Him. And there's something there for us too. That that even in the midst of our pain and our hurt and our sorrow and our loss, no matter what is going on, Jesus is right there next to us. Even if we can't see Him. Now, Jesus is going to reveal Himself to them on this journey. We know that. We've just read it. And here's what's interesting. Uh, It's where he starts on this journey. He starts with Scripture. Verse 25. He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then uh, to enter His glory? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He explained to them what was said in all Scripture concerning Himself. Think about what Jesus didn't do. Okay? He didn't give some um, class or some some huge experience or some powerful revelation to them, right? There weren't signs and wonders. There are no miracles. There's no tremendous prophetic word occurring. No huge breakthrough. You know, the sun doesn't stand still, the sky doesn't part. Instead, He takes them to Scripture. And that should be a lesson for us. Because during times of hopelessness and doubt, we tend, to be look, uh, we tend to look for the miraculous, don't we? We tend to want God to come in and somehow, someway, just boom, take care of it all. Or, or show Himself powerfully. Or, or make this big splash. We want God to come in and shake things up in our lives and then restore everything. And we get upset when it doesn't happen. We get mad. It usually gets us into this deeper place of darkness. Like, where is God? Why doesn't He have my back? You know, years ago, uh, when I was preparing for ministry, uh, the story I always tell is that we did an internship for a year and a half and then went, couldn't afford to do an internship anymore and ended up quitting the internship. And, and when I quit the internship, it put me in this huge place of, of just um, depression. Because I felt like we just took our family on this year and a half, two year journey 
we, we, we just you know, went into deep poverty trying to prepare for ministry. And you kind of look back and go, well, why did we do that for two years? Why did I put my family through all that? And it, it put me into this deep place of darkness and despair and depression. Which I like to call the, the dark night of the soul. St. John of the Cross writes about that. Where we get into this place where we haven't necessarily lost our faith, but it feels like Jesus is a million miles from away from us. God is a, a million miles from us. And we just experience this sense of darkness, despair, isolation. Dark night of the soul. And so um, I really, really was there. And, and you start questioning things like, why? Why did we do that? And in the midst of that, um, we took a trip with our church to Toronto. Uh, back then, there was a huge revival happening at the uh, Toronto Airport Christian Fellowship. Um, it used to be a vineyard, then they went independent, but it was this massive worldwide revival. Thousands of people would show up every week. Um, the ministry time was so insane that they put tape lines on the floor, red tape, and unless you were standing on the tape, that's how you got prayer, because they couldn't differentiate who wanted prayer and who was just getting affected by the Holy Spirit. Crazy time. But we went, right? We went. And it was a bunch of people from our church, and Cindy and I, and we went up there, and everybody is getting affected by the Holy Spirit. I mean, people are just walking in the room, and whammo! Except me. I'm getting nothing. Absolutely not. They have these things. Unless, okay, I'm going to tell you this stuff. You're going to laugh. Unless you're in a season of renewal, and you, you won't get it. They were called fire tunnels back then. So it was a bunch of people praying like this on both sides, like maybe 20 people, and you would walk underneath it, and the Holy Spirit would just like whammo you. And everybody's doing that. I go do it, and I just walk through like, you know, it doesn't exist. Where's God? Where is He? Where is He? And we all find ourselves in places like that. Where's God? Jesus didn't start with the miraculous. He started with Scripture. And that's where we're supposed to start. Isaiah 48 says this, The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God endures forever. When we find ourselves in places of hopelessness, we start our journey out of it in Scripture through the Word of God. I tell people the same thing every time. Start with Psalms. Whenever I'm in my darkest, whenever I'm in a place of loss, in a place of hopelessness, I start in Psalms. And I start reading Psalms. Like, lots of them. I love the Psalms. Because David is about as honest as it gets. David doesn't like paint rosy pictures. When he's mad at God, he lets God know in Psalms. Why have you forsaken me? What have I done? Turn all of my enemies, smote them. All the things that you want to say, but you feel like you can't say because you know it just feel impolite or not righteous enough, David will take care of that for you. And so I go into Psalms. I start praying Psalms. I start reading Psalms. It, uh, it was written that Saint 
Um, St. Patrick told his followers to read uh, 50 psalms a day. He did all 150 a day. And he, you read them as prayers. You take them personally. You cry out to God. Amazing things happen. Now, the next part of this story is interesting. Verse 28. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if He were going further. But they urged Him strongly, stay with us, or stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So He went in to stay with them. They wanted Jesus to stay with them. They weren't just being polite. Scripture tells us they urged Him. They begged Him. And what I always find interesting in this story is that Jesus seemed to like want to go on. Like, he was willing to keep walking without them. Jesus wasn't saying, hey, can I stay with you for the night? No, he was like, you know, going on his own thing. See, they were taught the Scriptures on the road, but that wasn't enough. They wanted more. Jesus didn't force Himself upon them. He didn't demand their hospitality. Instead, they had to invite Him in. And the same is true for us. We cannot remain stagnant in our walk with Jesus. We must desire more of Him each and every day. They urged Him to stay. And so He stayed with them. Now, what's really interesting here is the word that they use for stay. It's the exact same word in the Greek that we'll find in John 15.4. Maybe you've heard this verse. Remain in Me as also I remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in Me. Remain in Jesus. That's the picture that we have here. Is that they start with, with Scripture and then they ask Him to come, to be with them, to stay with them, to remain with them. We need to invite Jesus into our situations, into our place, into the place of doubt and hopelessness in our lives. So I talked about Toronto. Everybody else is getting affected. And I do what I always do. Whenever I'm in a place like this, you'll, you'll notice this with me. Whenever I'm in a place and the Holy Spirit is going bonkers and I'm getting nothing, I'm on the back wall with this. Usually sitting on the floor, my head buried into my Bible. And it could be for one of two reasons. Either I'm crying out for God and I'm in a bad place, or I don't buy anything that's happening in the room and I'm looking for texts to make sure that either A, this is God, or B, I need to get my people out of here. One of the two. What's giving me that look? I spent most of the trip in the Word. Okay. Finally, the last day, I had enough. I had enough. So I went, and I stood on the red line. And I got into position. You're in the vineyard long enough, you know the position. And someone came and prayed for me. Nothing happened. I didn't move. And another person came and prayed for me. And I said, God, I ain't moving. I ain't moving until you show up. And I stood on that line for probably an hour. And then finally, finally, something happened. Finally. 
See, we need to get into this place where we invite God into our situation. We invite Jesus into it. We need to get into this place after being in Scripture saying, Lord, we ain't moving until You are here. We need to invite Him into the place of that. Now, there's an interesting twist in this story. It's when their eyes open up. Notice in verse 30, when He was at the table with them, He took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized Him and He disappeared from their sight. Okay, we read this story and we don't think anything of it, right? We got the picture of the Last Supper. Jesus came, broke bread, prayed over it. Whammo, they see. Jesus disappears. End of story, right? Step back for a moment, okay? This is a weird story because I don't know how your household works, but when I have guests over, it's not customary for my guest to be breaking bread and doing all of that stuff, right? As the host, I'm the one who usually does that. I serve my guest. I'll pray over the table. I'll break bread. Yet Jesus comes in here and He breaks the bread. See, there's a nugget here for us that we need to get. They surrendered their bread to Jesus. And we need to be surrendering our bread to Him as well. He can do so much more with it than we can. See, We need to get to this place where we're totally surrendered to Him. Where we surrender our lives to Him. Not just give Him charge over our bread, but the rooms in our houses, the cluttered mess that we live in. We have to show Him and surrender Him the parts of our life that we wouldn't normally show or surrender to anyone else. We need to give Him free reign into those areas. And when they do that, when they give Him his, their bread, when they surrender to Him, it says in verse 31, their eyes were opened and they see them. Or see Him. It wasn't that they opened their eyes. It was at that moment of surrender, God opened their eyes for them. See, if we surrender, if we make ourselves vulnerable to God, He will reveal things to us that we would not otherwise understand. We don't not only invite Jesus into our situation, but we must also surrender that situation to Him. I started this story uh, this, this morning with the story of John and the cancer. And, and one of the things that, that absolutely blew my mind my attitude to God on this was, why? Why are you doing this to Him? And I wasn't the only pastor who knew Him. There were a bunch of us who knew Him. He made His way through all of the churches at one time or another just to get stuff. And we all knew what God had done in His life. And we all asked, why? Why now? But that wasn't John's attitude. John's attitude was, I found Jesus in the midst of my pain and suffering, even though I'm about to die, I have found Him, which now secures me what my future will be. He, he died in such a sense of hope and faith that I've never seen before in my life. It was a lesson to all of us. We, we had His funeral service. We had to have it at a larger church because so many people came that many of the pastors who were there got together and we talked about how His death was such a place of faith for our lives, that we'd never seen anything like it before in our lives. See, he had gotten to this place where he realized that his life was a mess and the only way that it could be fixed was when he completely surrendered everything to Jesus. No matter what. 
Think about the line from the Our Father. Right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. His will, not our will. His will. And that's the place that we need to find ourselves in, where we completely surrender it, our pain, our suffering, all the stuff, even the stuff we're embarrassed about, we surrender it. Now notice what happens at the end here. We'll wrap up with this. Verse 32. Then they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while He talked with us on the road and opened up the Scriptures to us? Their hearts are burning. That's where the Holy Spirit is now showing up. We wanted Him up front. We wanted the Holy Spirit to come at the beginning and just set everything right. But that's not what happened. Holy Spirit shows up at the end. The story continues. They rush back to Jerusalem. Think about that for a moment. They spent the whole day getting to Emmaus, seven miles. Have you ever walked seven miles? I have. You know, it's not like just driving from here to Walmart. It's like walking from here to, you know, that's going to take some time. And so now they don't even finish dinner. They get up and they run back to Jerusalem. So they're getting back to Jerusalem late at night. And they're going back because they need to tell the disciples what Jesus just did for them. Although they don't fully understand what just happened, they got to go tell them. They left Jerusalem walking in disbelief and they're rushing back as empowered witnesses. See, what we see here is a glorious transformation of two people who were sad when they did not fully understand what they were experiencing, but became powerful witnesses to Jesus after He showed them. They weren't ready, but He made them ready. They were sad, but Jesus filled them with joy. And that same transformation is available to us, but only if we're willing to take that same journey with Jesus. See, transformation begins with the Word of God. That's where we start. We start in the Word. We can't, short, we can't skip over it. No matter how much we want to, we can't skip over it. And then we need to invite Jesus in. That seems like such a simple thing, but it's something we tend not to do. We want to experience like the wham, boom, bam. Keep Jesus to the side. But not only do we need to invite Him in, we need to completely surrender. It's at that point we become pliable for the Holy Spirit to begin working within us. We begin to be pliable for the Holy Spirit to come to bring transformation and restoration funny part is after that moment in Toronto, that was what? 2000? 2001? 2000. About six months later is when all the doors opened us for us to return into ministry and everything started moving for us to move to DeKalb and find the church. What we thought was dead, the Lord resurrected. But it didn't occur until we got to this place where I got to this place of complete surrender. And the same is true for us, but it all begins just by taking a simple journey with Jesus. Let's pray.
understandably. Holy Spirit, we just thank You for Your presence with us today. Lord Jesus, we thank You that You're with us even if we can't see You. Holy Spirit, we, or Lord, uh, Father God, we just uh, are grateful that You're here. Now, Lord, as we, we gather today in this first Sunday after Easter, as the rain is pouring down on the roof, as, as the clouds are amongst us, as it moments we feel this, this sense of melancholy in our lives, Lord Jesus, we know that You are here with us. Even if we can't see You, we know that You are there. I think He's saying that today, didn't He? We know that You are there. And Lord, I know for many of us, we just need to see You. We need to experience that revelation that You are there with us. So Lord, draw us closer to You. Draw us closer to You.